Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Por esto fue llamado el nombre de ella Babel, porque allí confundió Jehová el lenguaje de toda la tierra y desde allí los esparció sobre la faz de toda la tierra. You just heard producer Fernando Hernández and myself read the Tower of Babel from the book of Genesis, together with some other voices from Google Translate. To many, the Tower of Babel is both a metaphor about human hubris and a prophecy seeming to doom humans to knowing just one language, unintelligible to others outside of their own tribe. So how are some humans able to escape this curse? The answer lies in another question. Who is the most multilingual person in the world? That's Michael Erard, a linguist and author who was so compelled by that question that he went around the world looking for the people who speak the most languages of all. He compiled his findings in a book titled Babel No More, now translated into eight languages. I wanted to know, yeah, absolutely, for real, what is out there in the world that we can document and hold up, and maybe there's something that we can learn about language and language learning. Producer Fernando Hernandez Becerra and I had a conversation across three time zones all the way to the Netherlands, where Michael Erod lives with his wife and two children to discuss his book and what he learned about language learning. Some of his ideas you might find controversial. I'm Steve Levine, and this is America the Bilingual. A native American English speaker. My parents were both Midwesterners, though I was born in Texas and then raised in Colorado and New England. His father had been a seminarian in high school and college who studied Greek, Latin, and German. My whole childhood was full of him kind of expounding at length in these languages. And I found that fascinating. Didn't have a chance to actually do any language besides English until high school, and that was Spanish. And what was interesting about that experience was that the high school that I went to was a private all-boys Catholic school in Lawrence, Massachusetts, situated in a neighborhood that was largely populated at the time by uh, people from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. So in the classroom, we were studying Castellano, 
Castellano or the uh, the Spanish of Spain, which could not be used out on the street with the people in the community. And as I think back on that experience, I was struck by that. And then, so I had a certain facility with Spanish, but never used it in any <clears throat> real manner or anything like that until college, when I expressed an interest in studying abroad and the advisor said, don't go to England. Michael moved to one of the countries in Latin America with the most respected style of Spanish of all, Colombia. Which I can admit, even as a Mexican, but there was one problem. This was during the Escobar years, right? Yeah. The drug war in the late 80s was just starting to heat up. My parents didn't want me to go at all, but I, I insisted. And, and then I was you know, just amazed walking around because what you get in the newspapers and from the media is that it's a war zone and there's bombs going off. But the life in the city was people going to restaurants and drinking coffee and walking, holding hands. And you know, that was the first time that I really was able to measure that distinction, that difference between what the media portrays versus life on the ground. After his year in Bogota, Colombia, Michael moved to Taiwan. Without a lick of without a lick of Mandarin. He stayed there for two years. When I came back, I was I like to say that I sounded like an eight-year-old that knew how to order a beer and chat up women. <laughs> <laughs> when he came back, he completed an undergraduate program in linguistics. Fast forward a couple more years and I've finished writing a dissertation at that point about about kind of linguistics as a science from a historical and rhetorical point of view. I want to become a magazine journalist. I want to write about language. And this was 1999, 2000, 2001. There were not the blogs. There was no such thing as Twitter. There was no such thing as Tumblr or any of that stuff that podcasts didn't exist. So all of the that whole landscape of pop linguistics stuff that that's out there now just, just totally didn't exist. So I took that as my niche and like to call myself. That's really interesting you said that, Michael, because probably you had some previous thoughts about what this what the world was becoming right more globalized and then you said 9/11 happened and you have like this switch moment when you say okay this topic is not as explored as i thought it was was it like that in part and also what happened was that it was around that time that i discovered polyglots you you've been asking me about my linguistic autobiography and it seems like maybe babble no more should come out of that right there's certainly parts of my own experience that i include in the book but really the interest in in polyglots was about an understanding of linguistics as a discipline michael was part of an email group called the linguist list where someone posed an intriguing question. Who is the most multilingual person in the world? It seems like there should be a straightforward answer. Right? How many languages do you speak? Someone has an answer. 
it's 24 and then you go on from there. But what the linguist did was to actually have a, a long debate about the nature of that kind of multilingualism as to whether or not it could really even exist and whether those people were real and interesting or whether they were hoaxes. And there was a disagreement about that, even though a lot of linguists themselves are high-intensity language learners. But instead of just discussing it with peers, Michael took it upon himself to go out and find these polyglots for himself. What is out there in the world that we can document and hold up, and maybe there's something that we can learn So what have you learned from interviewing these polyglots that can, can be of use to ordinary people trying to learn one other language? I think there's a, a number of things that I still think about all the time myself as a native English speaker living in a country where I'm uh, learning Dutch. <laughs> so one of the important things was this uh, notion that any bit of the language you learn is more than you had before. It's what I call in the book a kind of something and something model of a linguistic repertoire. And in fact, it wasn't worth pursuing at all because you would never get to that point where you would be like a native speaker. Fernando, as a Spanish learner myself, I feel validated by this idea some days I feel like I'm making no progress at all, but I tell myself just to learn something every day. And to Michael Arard, that's exactly right. Yeah, I can relate to that as an English learner myself. There was another notion about, on one hand, trying to find some sort of method that suited you. Do you like to listen to stuff? Do you like to write stuff down? Do you like to just memorize verb paradigms, that sort of thing. But on the other hand, there was the notion that you can spend a lot of time pursuing this kind of optimal set of language learning strategies for you, but maybe that's really distracting you from doing the hard work of just learning the language and that you actually gain more traction. Oh, that's interesting. So you have encountered people who obsess about methods when they just uh, need to knuckle down and, and just do the hard work? Yeah, there was a, a guy named Johan, I can't remember his last name now, who won this really interesting contest in the early 90s to find the most multilingual European, Johan van der Waal, actually to find the most multilingual European. And there was a contest and he won with 21 languages. But that was indeed his advice about language learning, like pick a method and stick with the method. Many people have come up to me when they learn I'm a language learning and, and learner and they say, how are you doing it? Because I really want to learn Italian. And for some reason, they always whisper. Like, I'm going to impart some secret <laughs> to them. I, do you ever hear something like that? The whispering part? Or, yeah. They're whispering it because it's a question that's not intended for a human. It's a question that's intended for a god or a deity. People want to be benighted. People want to be infused. They want to be blessed, right? They want to be 
in, they, they want the language incarnated in them, but they don't want to have to do the work to do the incarnation. So they want to go to the lords of, of language learning. I think the, that desire for a kind of healing place comes from a little bit of that internalized notion that oh, there's something wrong with me. I only speak one language and I wish that I could be cured. Let me ask you more about that. Do you think that this is a conclusion that monolinguals come to, that they're missing something valuable? I could speak for myself, right? And say, yeah, quite definitely it was, I, I knew that it was something that I was missing out on. I didn't know the contours of it. And it really wasn't only, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, moving to Europe, that I really began to fully understand what it was that, that people were talking about. Michael told us how, when he moved to Europe, he discovered all these small languages in addition to the national languages. I'm also struck by the way that these hyper-local languages serve as a, as a substrate that are very old, and that because they're not taught in schools and because they're rarely written down, they have their, this life of their own and an existence of their own which is inc very real, but it's hard to put in a bottle and, and turn into something very hard to monetize as well. And so that's the stuff of life in a way. And then along come these nation states and impose these other national languages on top of that. And what's amazing is that people struggle, there's some resistance, but there's also a kind of attitude of, Okay, we'll learn that one too, which is the message of Babel No More, that title, the, which is a reference to the, the Tower of Babel, which was famously a punishment from God for human hubris to throw human society into disarray by making everyone communicate in different languages. And the polyglot or the talented language learner is the one who says, who, who, who shouts back and it says, you can't impose that on us, or you can try, but we will just learn all of the languages and neutralize the punishment. Michael said that for some language learners, it's a religious experience. And that maybe we should acknowledge that and help these language pilgrims along their journey. And this is really a question for your listeners. Are there places in the world where there are shrines or temples or mystical sites or something like that? for language learners. Where I live now in this part of the world, there's in Spa, Belgium, which is, I don't know, 30 or 40 kilometers away. There's an old convent there where they hold intensive language immersion programs. You spend a week doing Dutch or French or whatever, and it's called going to the nuns. So it is a religious experience. Yeah, it's, in, in that instance, it's totally religious, yeah. Michael worked for about five years for a communications firm in Washington, D.C. that developed metaphors to help people think about social problems. That's why he calls himself a designer of metaphors. He offers one that can be applied to language learning. I've had many people come up to me and say, I'm just no good at languages. Do you have a response to those people? What I would say is that... Language learning is 
uh, it's like weaving a rope. There's lots of different components to, I mean, doing any kind of skill, right? Um, there's the purely cognitive part, the stuff that you do with your brain and the stuff that you, you, that you do with your body. But there's also the, the parts that are about, um, that are social, who you do it with, right? And then there's this kind of emotional part of the rope too, which is how do you manage the feelings of being a learner? How do you manage the feelings, your own feelings of being in over your head, of making mistakes? But I think what I would do is offer back to that person that metaphor. The metaphor of a rope. Yes, I like that, an ever-strengthening rope. Michael's next book is about the first and last words a person says. To some people's surprise, as everybody who's ever had a, a baby knows, you'll be getting news about a baby being born, and then there'll be news about someone dying. So these things are constantly happening at the same time, right? There's a kind of simultaneity to, the, to these phenomena, even though we don't necessarily experience that for our own lives. And so well, what happens if, if you were to take some cross-section of everybody who's being born or everybody who's learning how to speak, really, and everyone who's dying in one place, in one moment of time, what would that look like? What would that sound like? Would they be spoken words? Would they be gestures? Would they be some mix of the two? Where would signed languages be there? It'd be in there. People who were using more than one language during their lifetime, what would that look like at the end of life? I think it's such a fascinating topic. And, and, and um, do you, are you observing differences in what people say depending on what language they speak? I mean, clearly the language is going to be different, but the kinds of things that German speakers might say versus French speakers versus English speakers. For the most part, those things are determined by culture and historical period. They're not so much determined by the language that people use. Now, um, when it comes to some of the that are not traditionally thought of as language per se, when it comes to things like facial expressions or the use of hand gestures, what you do with your eyes, also how you moan in, in an expression of pain, those can be very, those can vary by, by language. Although it's also culture is a big, is maybe the most important dimension there. And do you happen to remember the, the first words of your own children? The book was partly inspired by the experience with, with the first one, where I had this very <clears throat> naive notion of what it was that I was supposed to be looking for or expecting, right? Which I had this idea that it had to sound like an adult word. And when it came, it was really wonderful. And he said round. He was looking, he was pointing to a fan and saying round. And I thought he was just babbling. And then I stopped and listened. And I, Are you saying round? And he got this big smile on his face. Oh, you finally understood what it is that I've been saying. And, but it, he was, he was pointing at a, at a ceiling fan. But 
there had been things that he had been saying before that were very consistent, but they were not at all like an adult word that to him was a word. Uh, so why didn't we count that? So it was only in retrospect that we went, oh, maybe that was the, the first thing that was. And then we looked even further back and said, oh, there's there's actually something else that he was doing that was very consistent. And how about your, do you have a second child? Yeah. <laughs> The second child. Yeah. I mean, he said, he said book. Yeah. Expected book, especially growing up in your household. I'm sure there's a lot of books around. That was a tender personal story about his son's first words. Next, he told us a hard story about someone's last words. Someone told me this story where he was at the hospital and his wife had just given birth. And he was from one European country and his wife was from another country and they didn't speak each other's languages, so they just used English with each other. So she had just given birth, and all of a sudden she starts speaking her native language, and he doesn't speak that language. And he doesn't know why she's speaking that language, but it alerts the medical staff. And in fact, there's this known phenomena called foreign accent syndrome, which is a marker of cerebral hemorrhage. And they brought her to the, the scanner and imaged her brain. And in fact, she was having a cerebral hemorrhage and she died shortly after. So he has this last word, this last utterance from her, but he doesn't know what it means. He has no idea what it means. And he has no idea if it was even intended to mean anything, right? but it's the last thing that she says to him. To me, that kind of story is, is emblematic because it speaks to that incredible desire for closure or for something meaningful at these moments of departure, and yet how, how fragile they are at the same time. Michael hasn't lived in the U.S. for five years now, but he believes that the attitude toward bilingualism in our country is still more about the commodity aspect of it. And I was quite taken with the argument by a friend of mine named Richard Benton, who's a polyglot, who argues that when people learn another language, they should be reaching out to immigrant communities locally and learning those languages as a matter of hospitality and making connections that way. And I was very taken with that at a certain point and tried to, to reach out. And, and, but there was, it was quite difficult. It was surprisingly difficult for, for somebody who looks like me to show up in that community and, and offer to, to learn the language. I tried it once in, because I was inspired by that, but I didn't stick with it. Again, the rope, right? So there's a social piece to that. You can't just show up and say, teach me your language. That was stupid. I should have gone and just hung out in those places and with those people and just hung out, right? And showed that I was interested in them as people and not just people who were bearing something that I could turn into a into social capital. There was a different way that I should have gone about it, and I didn't. Do you think human beings are meant to be bilingual? 
I think that human beings are meant to have very complex linguistic systems in their brains and to use those linguistic systems in as many social interactions as they can, right? Now, whether that linguistic complexity gets mapped onto one thing that's called one language, sometimes it is. Sometimes it gets mapped onto a bunch of different things that get called different languages. But ultimately, I think that human beings, you know, it's that linguistic complexity that we're uh, that we're evolved for. So, Michael, getting back to bilingualism, how important is bilingualism to a life well lived? I can't imagine living any differently than the way that I do now, which is there are Donald Ducks in Dutch in the living room. There are magazines in French for kids in the living room. My youngest son will come in and there will be Dutch songs that he's singing. And he doesn't read French, but I've got to sit down and he's interested in those magazines. So I get to read those magazines to him in English, translating from French. And I just am amazed at how much access I have and how many doors have been opened both individually and as a family because of these languages that we have. Our thanks to Michael Erard, author of Babel No More and the upcoming book, Bye Bye I Love You, the story of our first and last words. My thanks to members of the America the Bilingual Project team who worked on this episode, Fernando Hernandez Becerra, who wrote this episode, and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio, which provides sound design and mixing. Mim Harrison, editorial and brand director of the America the Bilingual Project, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Gracias por escuchar. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Levine.